Welcome to the Ask an Expert podcast, hosted by Joshua Carlson, co-founder of the award-winning direct marketing agency, Propello Media. Ask an Expert is a show of candid conversations with proven business and thought leaders, talking about real problems, and more importantly, about real solutions you can use to benefit your own business. We hope you enjoy the honest and organic nature of each guest's conversation. So let's jump right in. Imagine to help scale 1-800-GOT-JUNK from 14 employees all the way over to 3,100. Hi, I'm Joshua Carlson. In today's Ask an Expert segment, I'm going to be sitting down with Cameron Harold, who was the Chief Operating Officer at 1-800-GOT-JUNK during that rapid ascent. But he's also the founder of a group called COO Alliance. They're the only group that's strictly focused on helping number twos within companies. As he explains it, there should be a yin and yang relationship between the CEO and the COO. And when you can improve the relationship between those two, you rapidly propel the vision, the mission, and the performance of a company forward. Let's hear what Cameron has to say. All right. So Cameron, thank you very much for coming on our Ask an Expert. Hey, Joshua. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. Yeah, totally. So you've got a lot of notoriety for your role um, with helping scale up um, 1-800-GOT-JUNK. But prior to that, you actually had a pretty successful established track record. I'd love to hear about some of the things that you did before you even got to 1-800-JUNK. Yeah, it's actually one of the reasons I think why why I was even successful in scaling 1-800-GOT-JUNK was it was the third time I'd grown a company. Um, Brian and I had gotten to know each other through a group called the Entrepreneurs Organization. He'd seen me growing a chain of auto body collision repair shops um, that in Canada was called Boyd Auto Body and the U.S. is now called Gerber Auto Collision. Um, I'd also grown a private currency company. And um, prior to that, I opened the West Coast of the United States for the largest house painting company in the world, College Pro Painters. So because I'd done it a few times in a row and had all the systems and and processes to scale and grow really fast growing companies, I was able to go into 1-800-GOT-JUNK and really hit the ground running. And it was for the first five years, it was pretty easy. It was only when we got to about 3,000 employees did it start to feel like a big, big business. Okay. Uh, and I think that qualifies for a big business. Um, <laughs> there were 14 people at the head office when I got there. When I left, we had 3,100 system-wide. So. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's quite the scale difference. Um, so one of the aspects um, that a colleague, you know, he, he turned me on to with 1-800-GOT-JUNK was um, leveraging PR. In fact, you guys were even on Oprah. Um, what are things that, you know, companies today can do to actually get uh, a PR exposure and get some recognition um, out in the, the open marketplace? Yeah. In my book, Free PR, that came out last year, one of the things I talked about was that Virtually every company has five core stories or angles that they could be covered on today. Okay. You know, they have their, their founder story and how they started the company, whether someone left a crappy job and started it, or they noticed a pain point and they started it, or they were bored and they started it, or they had an idea and they started it. They have that kind of starting story. Right. And then they all have their hero's journey, you know, where they um, kind of they hit obstacles, they hit bumps in the path, they had to kind of overcome things. Um, or maybe they have the lessons from the edge, which are the real scary, you know, I almost lost the company kind of stories, or I almost lost my marriage because of it, or I almost lost my relationship with myself because of the business. Sure. They have that kind of lesson from the edge story, which which people really love. Um, most companies have a technology angle now where they're leveraging technology to scale. They're using apps or automations um, to really scale their business. And then I think we also have a, a culture angle where most companies can talk about, or they should at least, I've created a great company with a great culture and they can speak to what they're doing to turn their company into a magnet for great talent versus everyone else in their industry. 
So when you come up with those story angles, story ideas, if you come up with five core points for that story, you usually have enough to reach out to the media and talk about. Okay. And so the process is kind of picking which one of those you think is going to be a good fit for you guys, develop that internally. And then once you have that story refined, distribute it out into the media and and see what, what takes. Kind of. I actually don't even like distributing it. What I like doing is yeah. figuring out which media outlets do I want to cover me. And then I pick up yeah. the phone and I call them. Um, you know, more often than not, the media is getting bombarded with emails and press releases all day long, but nobody's ever phoning the journalist. So you right. probably, you know, let's say the journalist gets four phone calls a day. You've got a 25% ch- chance to get through to them. But if they get 200 emails a day, you have a 0.05% chance of getting through to them. So I don't really like spamming it as much as I really like very highly selectively targeting which outlets to contact. And then I pick up the phone and say, hey, do you have two minutes? I think I have a good story for you. Most of them will say, yes, go ahead. What's your story? I give them story number one, thinking about their audience. And if they don't like it, then I say, well, what do you think about this story? And I give them a second angle. So I always have two angles ready to go. Okay. And when you guys first started this, was this something that you started getting feedback from journalists that helped you enhance the story? Or did you feel comfortable with the story um, going out, you know, originally? No, we, we always would listen to the, to the journalist. Um, I've always said that with PR, people have to be able to ask questions and listen. Yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, here's my story idea. What do you think? The journalist will say a couple things and I'll position the story or spin the story a little bit more. We'll kind of you know, craft it together a little bit. You know, I've got this idea. What do you think of that idea? Well, I like part of the idea, but I wish it was more like this. Oh, well, then we could do this. As long as you understand your business, sure. you can usually explain your story or craft the story with the journalist. It's why most PR firms fail is because PR firms don't understand the business well enough to iterate and kind of craft the story on the fly. Yep. Whereas if you're an in-house PR person working with the company sitting near the CEO, you usually understand the business enough to, to craft the angle and position it in a different way. Okay. So it sounds like kind of a symbiotic relationship between, you know, this media person um, that understands their audience and you understanding what your business is. Um, exactly. and, working. Okay. And, and, you know, you're helping the journalist, right? The journalist yeah. every day, imagine being a journalist every day has to come up with a new story to write. Right. Where, where are they going to get 250 new ideas a year to be inspired with? So you're sure. inspiring them and giving them a story. You're actually helping them out on that day. Okay. Um, so speaking of storytelling, uh, Forbes uh, had a, a comment that you are one of the best speakers um, that hits grand slams. Um, so as someone who's personally spoken in front of audiences, um, I think maybe I'm a, a doubles kind of guy. Uh, maybe I got a triple once. Um, what's the secret to, to good audience storytelling um, that, that is engaging and, and leaves that memorable mark on that audience? You know, it's interesting. I talked to someone the other day about this and they said they really have to practice being a speaker. And I said, well, no, you're 42 years old. He said, yeah. I said, you've been speaking for 41 years. So you don't have to practice speaking. You know how to speak. Right. You speak to your friends, you speak to your parents, you speak to your spouse, you speak to your kids, you know how to speak. So when you stand up on stage, speak, just be you. I think most speakers try to become this person on stage. Right. So their voice changes. They're, it's like, hi, I'm Cameron Harold, and I'm here to deliver a presentation. And everyone in the audience is going, that's weird. Like it doesn't, it doesn't resonate. And I think we all have our natural tone, our natural resonance. Sure. I think it's all, you, you, we have our natural dress code. 
you know, and, and when you wear what you naturally feel comfortable in and you speak the way you naturally feel, um, speak, you know, feel comfortable speaking, mm-hmm. whatever your message is comes across and really connects. So I think that's the first part is to just be yourself completely authentic. Yeah. And then second, to remember that you're there to help the audience to take ideas back and put them in place in their lives or in their business. Sure. So I try to, to deliver based on very tactical, easy to implement things that they can do. I try to stay away from the theory. I try to stay away from the complicated. So they, they leave with like cheat sheets on how to do stuff. And I find that that really works. Okay. Um, so that's great to hear. I think authenticity is definitely one that to me, um, I think there is a learning curve, um, but I'm hopeful that the fact that we've all been put on video for these past few months, um, it's kind of broken down this weird facade that, you know, when you step on stage, it suddenly seems different. So I have to be different as opposed yeah. to no, just be yourself. You know, I was, I was also groomed as an entrepreneur. My father was an entrepreneur and both our grandfathers were entrepreneurs. We grew up in entrepreneurial families. And when we were kids, my dad used to make us stand up and tell stories to the family about okay. random things. He would give us three things like a brown chair, uh, a guitar and a green screen. And we'd have to tell a story about those three items. And so as a seven-year-old, a 10-year-old standing up in front of, literally standing in front of my brother and sister and my sure. dad telling stories, we got used to to that. So maybe, maybe I had a bit of an, uh, you know, an advantage, I guess, growing up that I didn't really see. Well, I feel like part of that lends to your second thing, which is make it something meaningful for the audience, right? You know, when you're talking about a chair, right, an inanimate object that we all sit in, like, you've got to, you've really got to press the limits as far as what that conversation or what that story is about. Um, And I feel like we assume, especially as it pertains to our specialties, that it's it's just secondhand, but for the audience, this is the first time, uh, or maybe they've only heard it about it a few times, and so you really need to think about it from the audience perspective. You know, you just touched on two things. One is, and I learned this from a very good friend of mine, Jack Daly, who's a spectacular speaker. Yes, he is. Jack said, remember that for the audience, this is opening night. Yeah. Now, Jack, Jack saw me speak at an event 13 years ago, and he'd seen me speak 10 times before. And he came up to me and he goes, your content, 10 out of 10. Your delivery sucked. And I'm like, whoa. He goes, Cameron, he goes, you're bored of it. You uh-huh. need to change your content. But remember, everyone in the audience, this is the opening night performance. It's the first time they've ever seen it. You need to deliver for them. And that forever changed me. That now when I show up, I try to give them the energy that they deserve and the content that they deserve or I, or I change up my content. So that was big. And then... The second one, I think, was to remember that, that if I'm always the expert, I kind of come off as a know-it-all yeah. versus coming off as human. And so I often will talk about my mistakes and my failures, really honestly, okay. about how I completely screwed up. Yeah. And then what I learned from that screw up and then what I put in place to fix it. Sure. And I think that hero's journey where I'm showing my pain and my suffering and my lesson and what I learned is really powerful in storytelling as well. Okay. Uh, well, that's insightful. And uh, I do second. We've had Jack on. Um, he is incredibly uh, charismatic speaker. So, um, and that's good. It's good to have a peer to be able to, I, I guess that's my third takeaway. It's good to have a peer that can shake you out of these you know, routines that we fall into that we're not even conscious of. Um, so constantly striving for feedback. Um, okay. I want to shift gears now. You've, you've created um, an organization, COO Alliance. Um, and I'd like to just share with the audience a little bit about what that is. 
Sure. You know, I, I was going for years to events with the Entrepreneurs Organization and the Young Presidents Organization with EO and YPO. And I would go to these Vistage events. And, um, and then I started going to a lot of mastermind events for entrepreneurs like the Genius Network and Maverick and Mastermind Talks. And, and I was getting a lot of really great connections, but they always wanted to stay. The, the other entrepreneurs always stayed at kind of the 30,000 foot level. Yeah. And I realized that as the COO of a company, I wanted to really get into the details. You know, if I wanted to talk about interviewing, they're like, yeah, we got to get all the right people into the company. And then they'd switch topics. I'm like, wait, we could talk about interviewing for two days. Right. And I realized that there was no place for the COO to go and actually connect with other COOs. You know, at best, we were going to these entrepreneur events, but there was no, you know, and there were events for marketers and for lawyers and engineers, but there was really no true place for a tribe of second in command. So we started the COO Alliance as the only network of its kind in the world for the second in command. And then we also started the second in command podcast um, where everyone interviews the entrepreneurs. I only interview the COOs. So I wanted the rest of the story. So as an example, I interviewed, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk's COO. I interviewed the COO for Shopify. I had the COO for the Cleveland Indians. Um, So we were kind of getting the rest of the story out of that group. So, Taking this further, um, you've explained um, or or you've talked about it often about the different roles of the COO as it pertains, honestly, to the organization as well as um, that other counterpart, that entrepreneur. Um, Can you share your your thought process on that? I I guess from my standpoint, it was kind of an awakening. I didn't realize how adaptable um, this role could, could be. It's not only that it can be, but it's very, very different. Harvard wrote an article about 15 years ago called The Misunderstood Role of the COO. They identified seven distinct types of chief operating officers. So they had, you know, the heir apparent and the the partner and the, the, um, the role model. And what I've seen is that you can have a very inward facing COO that looks at operations and engineering, or you could have a very outward facing that's kind of sales and marketing. You might have a COO that, that handles IT and finance, but maybe you have one that handles you know, engineering and operations. So every COO function ends up being the yin and yang to the CEO. Right. More, more than any other C-level, the COO is the true partner to the CEO. And the COO usually handles everything that the CEO sucks at. <laughs> they usually handle everything the CEO doesn't love. Right. Um, and then they just stay in their sandbox and they let the CEO stay in their sandbox with a very high trust factor and high communications between the two. Um, so that makes perfect sense. Um, but what is the process for that CEO to go out and find that perfect counterpart? Because I think one of the things this past few months have revealed is when the economy is surging, when everything's, you know, gangbusters, you can, you can hide you know, inadequate or subpar talent. And so I think a lot of people are looking at, at their staff, their organization right now, um, and, you know, misstepping in hires. Um, I think you said it's, it's 15 times annual salary if you, if you hire the, the wrong COO. I mean, that's, those are staggering numbers. So how do you make sure you get the right one? Yeah, that 15 times number is from the group at top grading. It's 15 times the annual salary of any of the wrong people in your organization. So even a okay. customer service rep, if they're the wrong person, is costing you 15 times their 40 grand a year. Sure. So the starting point is to have the CEO list out all the areas they're great at and all the areas they're bad at, all the areas they love overseeing and all the areas they don't love overseeing, yep. You know, all the areas that they would love to have someone handle for them. And that becomes the scorecard and the job description for what you're looking for. That's first and foremost. Okay. 
Secondly, is to really hire someone who has done what you need them to do. So you mentioned early on that I, I was the second in command at 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I came in as the 14th employee. When I left six and a half years later, we had 3,100 employees who'd gone from 2 million to 106 million in six years. But the five big things I needed to do when I came in as COO were to create a franchise coaching program, create a franchise marketing program, um, create a franchise training program, um, to build out a leadership team internally, and then to hire and build the team to run the company. I'd done that already. I'd already done that in a number of other companies. So the fact that I had done what I needed to do and can sure. prove, not that I just knew how to do it, but that I'd done it before, yeah. that I would probably be able to do it again. So when Brian brought me in, he knew that I'd already done it. He had proof that I'd already done it. And the trust between Brian and I was so strong because he was my best man at my wedding two months before I even joined him in the okay. company. So we already had this built-in friendship and built-in trust that I think was really critical. So in the interview process for any company, it's looking to hire someone that's done it before and that you know that you can trust them implicitly on day one. So it's doing the reference checks. It's using Torque. It's really grilling them through the interview process. It's having multiple people interview them. It's knowing everything about them on day one so that there's nothing left to learn. But most companies don't do the work. So it's great to hear you say this. I talked with um, Jeff Smart and, you know, one of the things we talked about hiring is it's basically one of the best future indicators is what have they done in the past. Um, mm-hmm. And so that track record that you're talking about and validating it, and obviously you guys had trust, but doing the reference checks is incredibly important because if you can validate that, then you've got proof that they can do it within your organization. Yeah, it's interesting. I just had Jeff um, speak at our last COO Alliance event as well. He was one of our guest speakers and I talked to his dad um, as well. God, when I talked to his dad, probably about a year or so ago, they've really done some great content with top grading in the book who, and I think that that's the key is for companies to actually embrace that content, learn that content and teach the management team how to even do interviews. Most companies really complain, oh, it's hard to find good people, but they've never had any training on how to find them and how to select them and how to onboard them. Right. Okay. Um, So... We have gone through a lot. Uh, when we scheduled this, uh, it's maybe a, a month or so back. Um, so even more is, is kind of evolved because we've been hit with the pandemic, which followed by the economy, which followed by social you know, issues that are front and center. Um, so there's a lot that's happening. And you know, the forecast is, I think, it best unclear as far as how we get out of this. So for businesses that are struggling right now, what recommendations do you have um, to not only pivot, but what, how should they be looking at it from, a, um, from an inward and outward um, standpoint to see what are the right ways or right directions to go? Wow. What are the, so one is that right now, more than ever, leaders need to lead. Okay. You know, that, that employees are looking to be led. They're, they're, they're nervous. They're scattered. They're scared. They're unsure. Um, they need someone to lead. So it's the best time in the world for leaders to roll out a vivid vision, to roll out plans, to engage the teams, to understand that we are where we are, but also to be driving forward and and not dwell on the situation or the past. It's like, yes, there's COVID. Yes, we're shut down. Yes, travel is tough. Yes, it's hard. And here's where we're going. So it's kind of like owning where we are, but driving forward. So it's really all about articulating a vision, clarifying the vision, communicating the vision, aligning people to the vision, and then making sure that you've got people working on the critical few things versus the important many. Really having your team working on the core projects that are driving toward that vision. 
So I think that's what, when, when companies will embrace that and roll with that, um, it's good. The second thing I would really be doing right now is growing my people, you know, really using this time to grow the skill set of my people. You know, I've been for years, people have said meetings suck, meetings suck. I'm like, no, meetings don't suck. You suck at running meetings. You know, so as an example, buy the book meetings suck for every single employee, have every single employee read the book, have every single employee, you know, do a five minute book report over lunch about what they learned from the book. And then a month later, have everybody watch a video about meetings. And then a month later, bring in a, a consultant to teach people on how to run meetings. Pick one theme per quarter to grow your people. You know, maybe next quarter you teach them on interviews. Yeah. Maybe the quarter after that you teach them on, on email management. But I think the more that we grow our people and align our people and inspire our people with vision, the more we'll really come out of this really strong. That's good advice. I think that there's a lot of um, free or very affordable education out there. Um, and to your point, if you just keep complaining about the same you know, problem or same challenge that you're facing, then you know, it, it's really shame on you for not you know, taking a resource that's available to you. Um, when we talk about pivots, one of the things that I think is, um, is important right now is a lot of companies are... Um, their resources are limited right now, right? They have been strained. And so, you know, it, when we, when we look at a pivot, it, that's it, true of some, I, there's a lot of companies that are actually doing pretty well right now too. Which is fair. Yes, there, there are. Um, but the ones that are struggling, if they're going to take a shot, do you have a recommendation for how they can validate that pivot? Um, because the last thing you'd like to see is them, you know, shift 45 degrees and they've completely missed the mark and, you know, the trains left the station. And so, yeah, you know, that's not my niche. My it's interesting. I, I've, I've talked to a lot of um, CEOs about this as well. I, I don't even work with early stage companies because okay. my niche is when someone understands their core product or their core service, yep. how to really help them scale. But I'm not the guy to sit down and say, you know, what's, where should we go? I, I don't know. Um, for me, once, once I, once you know where you're going, I can help you get there, okay. which is interesting. Even the companies that I coach, I've been coaching clients now for probably the last 13 years in 20 plus countries. I've got CEOs and COOs globally that I coach. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about their business. You know, even when I was coaching the second in command at Sprint, I don't know anything about the technology sector, but I coached Jamie Jones, the CEO at Sprint for 18 months. I don't know anything about the cell phone business. So yeah, I'm the, the last guy to say whether your pivot is the correct pivot. Yeah. But if you know you're going in the right direction, I can really help help you scale that. Okay. Well, so then let's, let's finish with, you know, it, what are the things aside that we've talked about already that you think would be important um, for organizations to, to be focused on now and, and looking into the future? I think it is really sitting down and having the CEO understanding where they're going, articulating that as a vivid vision, that four or five page written description of what your company looks like three years out. Um, I also really encourage people to get your pricing right. You know, I I would price yourself into more of a premium price or certainly at the 75th or 80th percentile of the bell curve. You can't make money. It's really, really tough to be in that Walmart model of the the low, um, the high volume, low, low margin business. I would much prefer companies to stay in the high margin, um, high profit business and then really deliver off that as well. Sure. Okay. Well, I want to thank you uh, for coming on today. A lot of uh, valuable insights um, and hopefully we can have you uh, have you back again soon. Thanks, Joshua. I appreciate you having me. All right. Thanks, Cameron. Hi, it's your host, Joshua Carlson, and I wanted to thank you for listening to today's show. 
This is the point where most shows ask you for a five-star review, but we're not doing this for the accolades. Don't get me wrong, seeing five stars feels great, but our goal here is to provide real content from real experts that can meaningfully propel you and your business forward. So if there's something we fell short on, a question we missed, or if you just have any constructive feedback, go ahead and leave a review with your thoughts. We also enjoy hearing directly from our listeners, so look for our contact info via the show notes so we can connect one-on-one. We really do love the feedback so we can continue to improve and propel the show forward for you and all of our listeners.